Hey, welcome everyone to Hope Brooklyn Church Online. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors of this beautiful community. If you're joining us for the first time, special welcome to you. You're actually coming at a great moment in, uh, in the calendar in the life of our church. Today we're kicking off a new three-week mini-series, so a short little guy, and uh, that is going to lead us to Sunday, September 13th, which is going to be a really big Sunday um, in, in the life of our church this year. And I have an announcement about it uh, at the end of this message, so uh, I hope you uh, stay tuned through the whole, uh, through the whole thing. Um, but Sunday, September 13th, is gonna be a really big Sunday for us. But before we get there, um, we, like I said, we're, we're starting a new mini-series. Uh, we are calling it The Fog, The Fog. And in this series, we're gonna be looking at the temptations of Jesus. Now, when I talk to many of you guys and sort of ask, how are you doing right now in this season? Or even when I describe how I'm doing in this season, uh, one of the illustrations that keeps coming up is this, this image of a fog. We say it feels like we're in a fog. Um, and, and what do we mean when we say that? Well, I think, I mean, if you imagine yourself in a really thick fog, uh, it's this feeling of extreme disorientation, this feeling of like really extreme dislocation. Uh, I mean, remember, I mean, it's tragic, but remember earlier in the year, the, 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 the headline of 2020 was Kobe Bryant's untimely death. And if you remember how he died, uh, he was in a helicopter and uh, it was in really intense fog in, in LA. And the pilot, um, he was so disoriented that he was not able to discern or determine what was up and what was down. And that's what a fog does. When you're in the midst of a fog, you, you're so disoriented that you can't see anything ahead of you, not, not one you know, foot ahead of you, you can't see behind you, you can't see to the right or the left, so you can't get your bearings and your, and your surroundings. So fear and doubt starts to creep in. You're, you're forced to uh, uh, move inward. You're forced to reduce your worlds to the lowest common denominator, which is your hearts, your beliefs. It feels like we're in a fog. And, and so then I, I sort of went with that metaphor of, well, what is it like to be in a society that's in the, in the midst of a fog? And here's the illustration I got for this. Um, do you remember being a kid in, you know, with a group of friends in a room and suddenly uh, the lights go off? Someone shuts off the lights and it becomes pitch dark? What happens when, when the lights go off and you're a kid? What do you do? Well, the first thing I would do, I'd go, oh, right? I'd freeze, I'd tense up. And sort of the, the, the senses, the hairs on the back of my neck will shoot up. Maybe one kid lets out a little, little chirp, a little scream or something. And at first you're okay, because it just happened in, in the first couple seconds where the lights go all off, you're okay. Because you have a, a mental image of what the room looked like and where people are in the room. But then something curious starts happening, doesn't it? Thoughts start playing through your mind. Hypothetical situations, for example, like Connor was sitting over there and I've never had any beef with Connor, but there was that one time that Connor did that thing to that kid. So now suddenly, like I'm pretty sure Connor wouldn't do anything to me, but I don't know. Did he have a shifty look in his eye before the lights went off? And before you know it, I've concocted this whole situation that Connor's making his way over to me in the darkness. He's probably gonna shank me, pull down my pants, 
I'm gonna be so embarrassed, he's gonna mess with me, right? And so we're all doing this, we're all sort of creating these monsters in the darkness, we're all creating these situations where suddenly, because we can't see anything, we distrust people's motives, we impute our sort of, our, our thinking, our motivations onto people, and then probably what happens if you're the kids in the room, usually one kid is the first one to, to crack and they scream, and then the next kid screams, and then before you know it, we're all screaming, and then the lights go back on, and, and what, what is generally the case? Everyone's in the exact same space where they started. Nothing's happened, nothing real. It was all in our minds. I kind of feel like that's what society is like right now, right? The lights have gone off. The fog has descended. We can't see where people are. We can't see where we're going. We can't see where we've come from. We can't see the road. And we're super nervous all of a sudden. We're forced inward. We're, we're forced to sort of call forth what are our fears and our doubts and whether we actually trust people. It's revealed in us. Maybe I don't trust Connor that much. I thought I did. Maybe I don't, right? That's what we're feeling right now. And the question I have is, if that's the case in our society, how do we move forward in this? How do we not give in to the hysteria and start screaming? What is our path? How do we, how do we continue to walk in this season? Now, it's, it's helpful to know that actually the, the fog season is not uncommon. There's a rich biblical tradition in the Bible uh, it's a different meteorological term. They don't talk about the fog. They actually call it the desert. So it's called a desert season. But it's the same idea. The word for desert in the Hebrew is the same meaning as desolation or a wasteland. It's, it's this idea of, of what scholar, one scholar calls a liminal space, a, a space that does not have beginning or end. It seems to go on forever, just like a fog you can't see anything. You can't see where you came from. You can't see where you're going. You don't know what's up, what's down. You're super disoriented. It's this in-between place where ordinary life is suspended, the scholar says, where identity shifts and new possibilities emerge. And interestingly, in the desert seasons or in the fog, it's, it's the opportunities are on both extremes. It's, a, it's a, a place of extreme danger, extreme temptation, extreme chaos, but also in this biblical tradition, it's a place where people have intense encounters with God. Elijah hears the still small voice of God in a desert season. Hagar names God, sees God and names God after uh, her and Ishmael were cast out and they were in the desert. Moses encounters God in the burning bush in the desert. So these desert seasons, these fog seasons, though tremendously disorienting, tremendously intense, are actually the, the, the fodder. They're, they're the place, the opportunity for God to meet us in profound and intense ways. A new theology is gained in the desert or in the fog. And so as I consider, you know, where we're at right now as, as a church, where I consider where you are at in your lives, the ordinary has been suspended, hasn't it? I don't know what's going to happen with schools this fall. I don't know. <laughs> can't see the, the past, can't see the future. I don't know what's going to happen with your work, 
your finances. You're forced to, to look inward right now. And the opportunities in this season are extreme danger, but also a chance for extreme and intense encounters with God. So what we're doing in this three-week mini-series is we're going to look at another desert season, and actually the, the, the desert season of Jesus. Many people don't know this, or maybe you don't know this, maybe you know this. I don't want to assume anything about where people are coming from. Um, but Jesus, before he begins his public ministry, he actually spends 40 days in the desert um, being tempted by Satan. And there are three different temptations that Satan uh, suggests to Jesus' heart. And each week we're going to look at one of them um, because I dare say that those same temptations are what's being suggested to our hearts in this season. So before we jump into our passage, would you join me in prayer? And, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come into uh, our hearts right now. Come into our minds. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bind up the voice of the enemy. That you would open our hearts and our minds to hear exactly what you want to say to us. Even for those listening, Lord, who um, would not call themselves your follower, but if they're curious, God, if they're desperate, in this moment, would they take a chance and actually direct their, their inner voice, their hearts to you? And would they allow you to speak to them? For all of us, Lord, we're in this place of disorientation. We're in this place of dislocation. We don't know which way to look. Society is screaming. Our nerves are on edge. We need to hear your voice. And so as we look at the story of your son, we look at the way he was tempted and the way he overcame it. Would you speak through that story to us today? Would the spirit of the resurrected Jesus rest on us? so that we can be encouraged and comforted and empowered to walk in this fog, trusting that you are going before us and leading us. Even when our eyes can't see, our hearts know your voice and therefore know which way to walk. So open them today, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, let's look at the passage. So this comes from Matthew chapter 4, the very beginning of chapter 4. And this is what we read. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of Man, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's situate this moment for us. So in the end of chapter 3, again, Jesus' ministry has not begun yet. Uh, he has not started healing or teaching or, or um, gaining a following. He is still obscure and unknown. But the end of chapter 3, he finally shows up, and he goes out into the desert. What's in the desert? 
John the Baptist. John the Baptist who was tasked to prepare people's hearts for the coming Messiah. So John the Baptist, he essentially was telling people, look, your hearts are indulgent. Your hearts are selfish. You've turned away from God. Repent. Again, in the desert, an intense experience. So all of Judea was going out to John. They were encountering God in the desert and they were being baptized. They were having their slates wiped clean. And, and it, was, it was told, it was foretold in scripture that John would go before the Messiah to prepare people's hearts and the Messiah would come after to, uh, to give the kingdom to the people. So Jesus has shown up in the desert, and this is a story and a sermon in and of itself, but he also is baptized by John. And we're told at the very end of chapter three that as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens part, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove descends on Jesus, and then a voice from heaven says, this is my son, the beloved one. In him I am well pleased. This is my son, the beloved one. In him I am well pleased. And it says, listen to him. So that is the very end of chapter three. Jesus in the desert just had this really intense encounter with God. He received God's word as his beloved son. And then we're told the spirit led Jesus further into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Why? why? Why did the Spirit, after this really beautiful moment of intimacy, lead Jesus further into the desert, essentially uh, submerged him into a fog? He shut off the lights. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to provoke something within Jesus' heart. Namely, again, let's go back to the example of the lights being shut off. When the lights were shut off, suddenly, I'm like, I don't know if I trust Connor. I didn't know that. I thought Connor and I were cool. We had that great lunch that one time where we swapped snacks. Like, I thought we were cool. But when the lights went off, something came up inside me that said, I don't trust him. Likewise, Jesus had this intense moment with God. But now the lights have gone off. He's submerged in the fog and stuff is being revealed with him. And he's having to determine does he trust what God just said about him or not? Likewise, do you trust what God has said about you or not? What is in your heart? What is being revealed in your heart in this season? I, I love the way this is put in um, C.S. Lewis, his, his fictional wor work, The Screwtape Letters. Um, essentially, they are a collection of letters from the perspective of uh, evil, from a demon, essentially writing to another demon about how to tempt us from disbelieving the goodness and the love of God, disbelieving the kingdom. And in one of the earliest ones, uh, uh, Screwtape is writing, and um, the patient, as they call him, which is essentially humans, the patient recently uh, encountered God, similar to Jesus in this moment recently encountered God, had an intense experience of love and of intimacy. The gospel made sense to him. And this is what Screwtape says about what to do next, about how to tempt the patient. This is what he says. It says, work hard then on the disappointment or 
anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient. The enemy, and the enemy in this case, uh, since it's from the perspective of a demon, is actually God. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition, the liminal space, from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons and daughters is the word he uses. So here's the gospel. Like, here's the gospel. This is why I'm a follower of Jesus. God came in the person of Jesus. God spoke his word, his message in the person of Jesus to reconcile us with our creator. To, to remind us, to tell us again, and to have us know and believe that we are his sons and daughters. We are beloved. We are cherished. We are adored. And this isn't, the gospel is not just insurance. It's not this, this reduced thing of like, I believe in Jesus, and therefore when I die, you know, I have insurance and I'll go to heaven. No, the gospel is, is right now. I can experience what it's like to be a son of God. That life that is available in Jesus is, can be available for me if I want it, if I step into it. That is the gospel. God intends to make us sons and daughters, free lovers of him, our father, our creator. He wants us to act, to think, to behave just like Jesus. But just like Jesus, it will require testing and refining he will deposit things within us and then he'll have to refine it and purify it, shut off the lights and show, like bring to the surface stuff within us so that it can be removed and that we can be formed into his image. I mean, honestly, that's why we're entering into this fast. So uh, if you don't know, we're starting as a church, a 21 day fast, going through uh, this series together, being ready for the fall. And that's the importance of fasting. In fasting, we, we give up good things, not bad things, really good things, but good things that have become too important in our hearts. And they become so important that they're actually drowning out the voice of God. We give them up so that it reveals within us stuff that we didn't know was there, stuff that actually uh, demonstrates our distrust or our weakness or our flaws in some regard, to try to refocus ourselves, recenter ourselves, our hearts on the love and the word of God. So that's what is happening. The reason why uh, God leads Jesus deeper into the desert after this intense moment is because he has just spoken his identity in Jesus' heart. You are my beloved son. I am well pleased in you. And now that identity is being tested and refined. That identity is being purified within Jesus and it's being tempted by Satan. Now let's look at the nature of the temptations. All three of them have the same structure. And we saw it with the first one today. What is, when, when, when the devil comes to Jesus after 40 days, when Jesus is really hungry and probably seeing mirages, and he's probably like super disoriented right now, what does he say? He says, if you are the son of God, if 
You are the son of God. Well, of course he is. God just said he was. But it's important to realize right now, Satan is not able to tempt us with evil things because he cannot create. Evil can't create new stuff. Instead, what it does is it twists what God already spoke that was good. God told him, you are my son. And then Satan comes, well, if you are, what does that look like? He doesn't tempt Jesus with something super malicious or malevolent or, or, or selfish or indulgent. Instead, he takes the good thing that God created, that God spoke into Jesus, and he just twists it a little bit. He perverts it. And, and interestingly, that's what his name means. The devil, the Greek for that is diabolos. Dia, through. Balos, to cut, to throw. So the diabolos is the one who cuts through. The one who slices. The colloquial term for that is a liar. Devil, the diabolos, means the liar, the slanderer. He cuts through the intimacy that God is establishing with Jesus. Which, catch this guys. The evil one, for as terrifying as he is, the only weapon he has are lies. Lies aren't real. Lies have no substance. Lies don't exist. They, they pray. Lies take what is true and they twist it and they pervert it. But they don't exist. They only exist in our minds and our hearts. Now, on the basis of lies, we can act in the real world. We can do real things that we can cause a lot of real harm, which is ultimately what sin is. But the tools that the devil uses to tempt us, to tempt Jesus, are simply a perversion of what is good. As, a, as the, that scholar who was talking about the desert season being this liminal space where everything is brought into question, essentially what the devil has us do is reinterpret reality. He can't create new reality. Instead, he takes the reality that God has created, the words, the message that God has created, and he just asks questions. He spins it. He has us reinterpret it. And in the fog where we don't know up and down, maybe up and down are flipped. Which again, this is what's fascinating about Christianity. Christianity is not dualism. God is not opposed by Satan. Notice that. Satan does not oppose God. Satan opposes God's word. God speaks, and Satan opposes that. Which, when you think about it, that's all wickedness is. That's all evil is. Evil is the perversion of good. C.S. Lewis says this in, in his work, Mere Christianity, another work of his. This is what he writes. Wickedness turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. You can do a kind action when you are not feeling kind, because kindness is right. No one ever did a cruel action simply because cruelty is wrong. Only because cruelty was pleasant or useful to him. Badness is spoiled goodness. And you're thinking there, wait, I know people who are cruel because they like being cruel. But again, that, that sort of falls into what he's saying. He's saying cruelty gives them pleasure. But pleasure is a good thing. Pleasure was created by God. But to be cruel for the sake of, being, uh, for, of receiving pleasure is sick, is distorted. At its core, when you look at it, no one ever does bad things 
because they're bad. They do bad things because it provides something good like pleasure or uh, security or, or, or something good. It's just twisted. As John Milton says in Paradise Lost, uh, Satan's mantra is evil, be thou my good. Effectively, what Satan does, he takes the word of God, what is true and real, and he literally turns it on its head. That's what evil is. And it's important that we recognize this because when the temptations come to Jesus and when they come to you and me, they're going to come in our disorientation and they're not going to be to bad things. They're actually going to be to good things achieved through shortcuts. You're going to be tempted to cut corners. You're going to be tempted to, to doubt the character of God based on your reinterpretation of reality. Deep down, we know what is good. We know what is right. We know what is true. That's been proven. Jonathan Haidt in The Righteous Mind, he basically explores and concludes that there are nodes of morality across time and space. Like we have deep down, children come into the world and they have certain nodes of what is right and what is wrong. We know what we ought to do, but we don't. And when we don't, it's not because we, we choose the bad thing for the sake of badness. We don't choose the good thing because it's too impractical or it's too costly or, or unnatural. It feels unnatural inside or unnatural to our society. So instead we say, surely God didn't mean this. Right? That seems too difficult. Or surely he understands that. And we give in. In the temptations, all three of them for Jesus and for us, you will be tempted not to bad things, but to good things achieved through your own wisdom, your own power, your own strength. And so when we have this sort of backdrop and this, this context, when we turn to the temptations, this is what we see. Temptation one. If you are the son of God, you're hungry. You've, you've been fasting for 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. You're hungry. You're the son of God. Eat. Eating is a good thing. Eating is the most natural thing in the world. It's logical. You have that power. You're his son. You're hungry. Make bread for yourself. If you do not eat, you will die. That is logical, says Satan. Feed yourself. Feed yourself, Jesus. That's temptation one. Feed yourself. How is that a bad thing? How am I the bad guy? He's probably saying. I'm telling you to take care of yourself. God would want that. What are some examples in our own season, in our own fog of feeding ourselves? Money is insecure right now, right? Just cheat a little bit on your hours. I mean, not a lot. Just a little bit. Cheat a little bit on your taxes. I mean, let's be real. The IRS, I mean, we saw those reports a couple years ago, luxurious spending. I mean, they're cheating. Everyone's cheating right or left. I'm a little guy. Just cheat a little bit. Or, or look, money's uncertain. Stop giving to God, right? Stop partnering with him. He would want you to have the money. He would want you to feed yourself right now. Don't, you don't need to keep giving to the church. And that's not me saying give to the church. That is me saying this is part of our discipleship. This is the temptation. Feed yourself. Or maybe money's not an issue for you, but the temptation is, all right, let's just hoard a little bit more right now. 
Let's put a little bit more away because we don't know what's coming. Instead of seeing how God is leading us to help our neighbor. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're lonely in this season. I mean, what's a little porn? It's just a little bit, right? You're lonely. You're sexual. You're single. What's a, I mean, it's just, it, there's a lot happening right now. Just gratify yourself a little bit. Feed yourself a little bit. Drink a little bit too much. Numb yourself. It, I mean, there's just so much happening. Or you have job insecurity. I mean, just look out for yourself right now. You don't need to pray. You don't need to, to commit to, 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 I mean, maybe you had this commitment before COVID, but of course they understand in a COVID world that you can't honor your commitment, right? Look after yourself. Be strategic right now. Your spouse is not available in the season or, or things are coming up. Just lie a little bit. It's just easier that way. It's easier. They're not taking care of you. Take care of yourself. See, that is the temptation that Satan comes to Jesus. Take care of yourself. Because if you keep trusting him, Satan says, if you keep trusting him, you're going to starve to death. Does God want that? Does he want you to starve? Cut corners. It's practical. It's logical. It's natural. To which Jesus says, it has been written. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When he says it has been written, that's actually a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. A little flashback. Uh, Israel, throughout the Old Testament, was collectively referred to as God's son. And so a lot of these temptations even, and, and even these moments with Satan and Jesus, have already transpired with Israel thousands of years ago. So Israel was, was delivered by Moses out of Egypt, out of Egyptian captivity, and they wandered in the desert. They went into a desert season to have their identity refined and purified as God's chosen people, God's beloved sons and daughters, before they entered into the promised land. But there's a scene in the midst of this wandering where they're starting to starve. They have no food. They have no bread, and they're complaining for bread. And they even say, we should go back to Egypt because at least we had bread there. Guys, catch that. They would prefer a situation of enslavement and servitude because at least they had the certainty of knowing that there was bread. They would choose a terrible existence they would cut corners, choose what feels natural, a terrible, lonely existence because at least for a moment, they can experience the taste of bread and it satisfies them for a second. How many of you feel that way? You know choices you're making right now are not leading to long-term lasting satisfaction, but for a moment, it feels good. It tastes good. And so they're complaining for bread. They're starving. In their eyes, they have two choices, two options. Go back to Egypt or die. And in the midst of Deuteronomy, this is what we read. This is what Jesus is quoting to Satan. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you 
in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What's he talking about? For those who don't know the story, essentially, at a certain point, as Israel is complaining for bread, they don't know what they're going to do. God says, I'm actually going to give you bread from heaven. And then they go to bed one night and they wake up and they find these flakes of, of bread, these really thin, um, papery flakes that had fallen in the middle of the night. God gave bread from heaven, which, says Jesus, neither you nor your ancestors had known. This wasn't a category in your head. You, when you thought, what are my options? I either go back to Egypt and have bread and live and live in servitude, or I starve out here. But never in my wildest dreams did I imagine that God could provide bread in a different way. And see, that's the guarantee. That's what Jesus is saying. You're hungry in some way right now in this season. God will meet your hunger. He will. That is the guarantee. But he will provide, he will satisfy your hunger in ways outside of your current imagination. He will give you manna from heaven, which you had never even heard of before. Couldn't even fathom. <laughs> I'm reminded last week, if you, if you were with us, I, I said, I talked about Forrest Gump. I watched it over sabbatical. Now I'm going to talk about it again as an example because it fits. But if you remember the scene, um, well, Forrest in Vietnam, he befriended Bubba. Bubba was a, a shrimper and uh, Bubba ended up dying in Vietnam. And uh, Forrest had made a promise to Bubba that he would, you know, go into the shrimping business with him. And uh, so Forrest keeps his promise and a um, little bit of a long story if you don't know it, but another guy from Vietnam, Lieutenant Dan joins them. And so they are, they are shrimping in Louisiana. And they're terrible at it. They're just bad. Uh, there's a lot of competition. They don't know how to do it. And so then uh, when they're at their, their lowest, essentially Lieutenant Dan goes, where's this God of yours? And uh, Forrest goes, it's funny you should say that because that night God showed up. And this hurricane came in and effectively um, destroyed all the boats. Every boat was destroyed that night in the hurricane except for theirs. Did they learn how to shrimp better? No. Instead, the competition was destroyed. See, in their eyes and hearts, there were two options. Learn how to be a better shrimper, defeat the competition, or go broke. Little did they see that a storm could destroy the competition so that they could now, they don't have to be any better at it, it's just they're the only ones who are doing it. Now, what does that show Lieutenant Dan? That he needs a storm when problems come? No only that he needs to trust that God will make a way. And I see, that's, that's the point, guys. That's the point of this temptation. You have a hunger within you. And Satan's like, just feed yourself. It's there. Feed yourself. And you feel like there are only a couple options, two options, either feed myself or starve. But little do you know, as Jesus said, is that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. Satan isn't wrong. You do need bread to live. That's essentially what bread connotes. Bread connotes life. You need bread. You need life to live. But what we forget in these moments is 
Who made the bread? The bread is not what gives us life, but it's the maker of the bread. He's the one who holds the life. So he can provide bread in new ways. You have hungers in this season. Maybe you're lonely and you just want a friend or a spouse. Maybe you just want some financial security. You need some career security right now. We need a vaccine that will give us safety, right? We have all these different hungers in this fog, these, these uncertain places. And Satan is like, just take care of yourself. Jesus would say, man does not live on bread alone. It's not that we don't need those things, we do. But really, they are just symbols pointing to deeper things that we need. It's not that we need a spouse. What do we need? We need intimacy. We need intimacy. So man does not live on spouses alone. Man lives on intimacy that comes from God himself. It's not that, that, that finances are bad. What do we need? What do finances bring? They bring security. So Jesus would say, man does not live on finances alone. Man lives on the security that is provided, not just through finances, but through the one who holds everything in his hands. He is the one who provides, who gives and takes away. The vaccine represents safety. Man does not live just on safety alone, but the one who leads us, who protects us. See, more than anything, more than we need bread, we need the one who makes the bread. We need the word of God, relationship with God, and he will provide life. And maybe it will come through the bread, and maybe it will come in a way you can't even imagine yet. But the temptation for you is to, is to believe that in this fog, that God has forgotten what you need, or that he's abandoned you. Or, and so you start rationalize your grasping of the bread, of the feeding of yourself, because everyone's screaming in the dark room. In the fog, you say, if God were really God, if I was his child, he wouldn't give me this hunger without providing bread for it. And you're right. You wouldn't have this hunger without him providing for it, satisfying you. But the temptation is to stop trusting him and go make your own bread. And if you do, you'll never see the manna come down from heaven. You'll never see and understand that you do not live on bread alone, on those two options. You live on the one who made the bread. He's the one who satisfies you. And when you know that, bread can come from all sorts of places because he is the giver of life. It's not that security isn't important, it's just that for us, our lives are held secure by God. It's not that freedom isn't in our minds, it's just that for us, freedom is found when our minds are set on Christ's cross. See, I've seen too many of my friends in this season, and leading up to this season, forsake God. Not because God has forsaken them, but because they've given up in the desert. They've assumed that God has left them, and therefore they've proceeded to metaphorically go back to Egypt. They've proceeded to make their own bread, to feed themselves in a way that makes sense to their own minds or makes sense to their own societies, their own identities, their own ideologies, their own doctrines. And the world keeps holding up loaves of bread to us and saying, take them, feed yourself. But friends, I promise you, 
that's not it. Because if we eat it, guess what happens? If we eat the world's loaves, and you are, and I am, what happens? We get hungry again the next day. We look at porn, and the next day we're, we're feeling pretty low, or we need it again. We tell a lie, and the next day, just because it's easier, the next day we need to tell another one. We, we, we make a decision to hoard our finances and not to be generous with them. And the next day, we still feel anxious, and so we hoard more. That's the lie. That's the lie that we have to feed ourselves. And God is saying, Christ is saying, we don't live on bread alone. That's not what keeps us alive. But the one who made the bread, and he can bring bread through all sorts of ways. Do not give in to the temptation that you have to feed yourself. There are other options. He will provide for the hunger. That is the guarantee. But he'll do it in a way that you never could have imagined. It'll come in a form that you don't expect. And just like Jesus, it is your choice and it is my choice to trust him, to trust God, even though I want this thing so badly because I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry for it. I'm so tired. I want this thing so badly. I want to feed myself. I have a choice to say no, to say I don't live on that thing alone. I actually live on the giver of that thing, the giver of the intimacy the giver of the security, the giver of life. I live in relationship with him. Even though I'm so hungry, I will not feed myself, but I will trust that the same God who provided manna, bread from heaven, will provide for this hunger in a way that I can't foresee right now. Provide in ways that I would never fathom. And I will be satisfied by relationship with him in ways that the world doesn't understand because they keep clamoring for new loaves of bread and new loaves of bread. I will be satisfied with him because I don't live on bread alone, but on every word from his mouth. There is hunger in your body and you need relief and you need healing, I know. But it's found in the presence of God. It's not found just in the healing. It's found in friendship with him. There's hunger in your emotions. You're lonely. You're anxious, you're afraid, but it's actually not found by making the loneliness go away with something else. It's actually not found by, by uh, trying to dispel the anxiety. It's found when we bring the loneliness and the anxiety in our relationship with God. Friendship with Him satiates us. More important than any of these loaves of bread that we are being tempted to, to go after and create for ourselves it's to say, no, he is the giver of life. And just like Job, even if he slays me, ever will I trust him. He's told me I'm his child. He's told me I'm the beloved one. He's told me that he will provide for me, that I will not be alone. Therefore, I will trust him. And I know he'll bring it. And I guarantee you he will. That is a guarantee. It just won't come in ways you imagine. So at Hope Brooklyn, that's what we're doing this fall. We are forsaking feeding ourselves. We are forsaking our own bread. If we starve, it's because God doesn't exist. Or we will learn this fall to live on every single word that comes from him. Not just the bread, but the giver of the bread. That is where we're going after. 
So just like Jesus, we're going to be stepping into ways, into communities, into practices that, that say that we're not going to feed ourselves, but trust that he will feed our bodies. He will feed our souls. He will feed our minds. And he will feed our societies. He's what our societies are looking for in ways that we can't even fathom. And I know that some of it will feel hard and unnatural and impractical because in our brains, there are only two options, death or go back to Egypt. But he's saying, keep trusting me and I will provide. I will provide in miraculous ways. What is your temptation right now in this season to feed yourself? What is it? Don't do it. (laughs) I know that sounds like moralism. It's not. Trust that Jesus who overcame it can give you the friendship and the relationship so that you can as well. Don't do it. And in that vein, as we step as a community into this place of doubling down into the presence of God, here's what that means practically. I'm going to have more announcements. We're going to have more announcements coming up in the the next couple weeks about how we're gathering as tables and, and in smaller community spaces. But as it relates to our Sunday gathering, and here's the big announcement. On Sunday, September 13th, we're sort of moving back to to phase one of starting to regather all in one central place. And the way we're doing that is that we're gonna transition to complete live stream services. So what that means is that we're taking back the 11 o'clock a.m. hour on Sunday. At 11 a.m. on Sunday, just like our normal worship time, we're gonna be gathering live on YouTube And we're going to be live streaming a complete service of of worship, of the sermon in one place, of prayer and communion. And that's step one. We're going to do that on Sunday, September 13th. Invite your friends. Don't tune in alone because church is not something to consume. It's something where we bring our full selves and we gather as the community and receive from God. So don't tune in alone. Invite a friend in this season. We're all in this fog together. We're looking for something. Sunday, September 13th, live at 11 a.m. That will be step one, taking that 11 a.m. hour back. And then as we get deeper into September, we see how reopening is going with schools in the city. We see what rates are doing of COVID. We'll make our next step and determination in the fall of how we can uh, get more people into the same space. But that's gonna be really exciting. And with that, guys, I wanna close with some prayer. I'm going to close this in prayer. I don't know where you're coming from. Like I said, I don't know where, where your hunger lies, where you're being tempted to feed yourself financially, relationally. I don't know what it is. But I can promise you that what you're looking for is not found in saying yes to it. What you're looking for is actually taking that hunger to God and saying, you satisfy. You're the one who makes the bread. So bring life to me in this place. So wherever you're coming from, Would you put your hands out and let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need bread from heaven. We need you to provide for us in ways that we cannot provide for ourselves because we know that if we provide for ourselves, it'll cheapen. It actually won't bring lasting life. Lasting life, God, is found in you, in your presence, in relationship with you. And so we pray alongside Jesus today. We say man does not live on bread alone. We don't live on that thing alone that is within us that we're hungry for. That's not actually what it is. It's deeper than that. It represents something. And that thing is found in your presence because you created it. 
It's from you. So we need you, God. We need you more than anything else. And for those, Lord, who have never known that, would they see that reality, that truth in your son? Would they know that Jesus is the bread from heaven who came to provide life for us, eternal life? Would they know that that love, that bread, is what makes us sons and daughters of yours? Would they, would they sense in their hearts the ways they've been feeding themselves and that it's, it's not working, they're still hungry, they're still starving, and that you're the one they're looking for? Would they turn their hunger to you and trust you, God, and would you meet them as you promised to do so? Not in ways they imagine, but in your love and presence meet them. God, as we prepare for this fall as a church, we're not gonna feed ourselves. We're gonna bring our hunger to you and you feed us. We love you so much, Lord. We need you so desperately. Our world needs you so desperately. And we pray, Lord, that it's not on bread alone, but it's on your presence that we are healed and set free. So it's in your name we pray, amen. We're gonna sing a song of uh, response. Uh, and then we'll come back together and take communion before we close our service today. So let's sing.